0: The first uh, reading today is from the book of Genesis, chapter three, verses eight through fifteen. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called the man and said to him, "Where are you?" And he said. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The gospel reading today is from the book of Mark, chapter 3, verses 20 through 35. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, By And by the prince of demons, he cast out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if the house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God he is my brother, his sister, and mother. This is the Lord of the Lord. Thanks, be Thanks be to God.
1: God. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of each of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, O God, our rock and our Redeemer. There is an old three dog night song that says, One is the loneliest number that you'll ever do and that line is pretty self-explanatory right it sucks to feel lonely does anyone remember what the next line is though two can be as bad as one yes two can be as bad as one it's the loneliest number since the number one I don't just love that second line. I think it should go a little bit farther. I don't think it's strong enough. I think that two can be worse than one. Just this week, two well-loved public figures, Kate Spade, the fashion designer, and Anthony Bourdain, the chef and travel show host, died from a disease that damages a person's ability to feel connections to others and to the world. They were surrounded by a world that by and large adored them, and yet they were so lonely it literally killed them. See, we were made to be one. Not one as in alone or lonely or by ourselves, but one as in we are so connected that we are a unit. Real one is the ultimate end to loneliness. Real oneness is communion with God and with one another and even with our own selves. I would argue that one is the least lonely number when it's done right, when we are able to embrace our connections to God and to one another and to the world around us. But we're in a world of twos, right? And it's getting lonelier out there by the day. People are defined and separated and boxed in by their opinions on topics like gun control or LGBTQ rights or their neighborhood or their income level or their online personality quiz result or their political affiliation. And we are terrible at having discussions about these kinds of things. You bring one of those up and everybody's gonna blow up in all different directions at once. We talk about them at great length But our our talking is usually more talking at someone than talking with someone. And in our talking at one another, we divide, and the divide between each of us and the people around us just grows wider and wider. We are a lonely two, not a holy one. And this is not a new thing. There's nothing new under the sun, says scripture. Division and separation And being apart and loneliness, that is the crux of sin. That has been around from the dawn of time. It's been happening since the very beginning of humankind. Sin is separation. It's separation from one another. As we see in our passage from Genesis this morning, that as soon as Adam and Eve realize they've been found out, God knows they did something they shouldn't have. They begin blaming others. The division between them grows. When they embraced the tree, they were told to avoid. The problem was not so much the eating as it was their willful separation of themselves from God. They knew right away that they were fractured in some sort of way. But instead of coming together to work toward a solution, they make it worse. Adam turns and he points at his wife, and then Eve turns and she points at the snake. In their sin, Adam and Eve are separated from one another. They're no longer one in the way that humanity was meant to be. Two was a very lonely number for Adam and Eve in the garden. And if we are doing what is driving people apart rather than together, either driving them away from ourselves or driving them away from each other, that is sinful sisters and brothers. You got that? That can be really uncomfortable. It's very hard to find diplomatic and Christ-like ways to say things that, that sometimes are very difficult. I have deleted entire Facebook posts that I posted with the, the purest of intentions because they turned out, sometimes to my great surprise, to be so contentious and cause so much division between two groups of people that I love that I had to admit leaving it posted would have been sinful because it would have just let the fight go on. It would have encouraged division. It's not having an opinion that is a sin, but letting that opinion cause fights and division, that's a sin. Yes, Jesus said some very bold things that angered people. That is one of the things I really love about Jesus when I read Scripture is that he said some bold things and wound some people up. But if you notice... He said those things to people who were the perpetrators of injustice and division in the world. And we will disagree with one another. I'm not saying that this means we should all become one-minded automatons because that sounds terrible and dull. A few of us had a really great discussion the other day. We had a lot of great discussions the other day around lunch, but one of them was about how some people love it when we sing the apostles creed and some people hate it when we sing the apostles creed and some people love it when we recite it and other people find such life out of the singing of it now the sinful solution to a disagreement like this the sinful response in this conversation is to approach it with the old my way or the highway response right so either you're right or you're wrong in this and if you're wrong tough we're going to do it my way anyway but God's way is to remember that we are all a family. And sometimes in family, you bend and you share and you compromise and you shake things up, which is where that conversation ultimately landed. In other words, those who love the sung version made a loving decision to honor those who like to recite the spoken version and to embrace it when we recite it that way. And those who love the spoken version made a loving decision to honor those who like to sing it and to embrace it when we do that. What a beautiful example of oneness. In our sin, we're not just separated from one another, though. We're separated from God and from the ability to to feel God's presence. Adam and Eve aren't just separated from one another when they start pointing fingers and assigning blame. They're separated from God. They're so separated from God that as soon as they hear God walking in the garden, they hide. Here they are in the most beautiful place created. The place where they should be the most connected to God. And instead of savoring God's presence, they hide. They hide from it. And we still do that. We do that to ourselves. We drive ourselves away from the presence of God or hide from the presence of God. And sometimes we do it to others as well. And if what we are doing is driving us or others away from God, that's sin. That means if the church is doing something that chases people away, that something is sinful. And I'm not saying we have to cater to the masses. Or have some sort of peppy rock concert and self-help seminar every single Sunday. We're not talking about numbers of butts in seats. We're not talking about attracting people at all cost. Because you can have a church full of people who are hiding from God's presence. But I am saying that I've seen churches sin by having music so bad it chases people away. I've seen churches sin because they preach against certain groups of people rather than for God's glory and love and compassion. I've been to churches whose greatest sin is boring worship, so boring that nobody knew was ever going to want to stick around for it. Now, if this week, if anyone asks you what your preacher said at church, you can say she told us being boring is a sin and then do something really weird just to throw them off. <laughs> I had someone tell me once that they went to church. It was their first time ever going to church. And they sat down and they were told by a very grouchy regular that they were in their seat and they would have to move. And that person walked out and never went back to church again. What a petty thing to do that drove that person away from God. So thank God the story doesn't end with Adam and Eve hiding from God and hiding from one another. I'm going to be very honest with you right now. I very much wrestled with the gospel passage this week. It is a weird one, am I right? There is a lot of really strange stuff going on in this passage. You've got demons and blasphemy and Jesus saying, who are my mother and brothers? And his mother and brothers going, he's lost his mind. He's not even eating right now. And then you've got this doozy. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. And that very section of this passage has been misused throughout church history. It has been used wrongly to eternally condemn anyone from suicide victims to people who swear or curse at God. This marked passage is the sort of passage that lectionary preachers like myself look at and wonder if it's worth taking on this week because there's so much other stuff to do. I just did not feel like doing the work necessary to deal with this passage. I even wondered if this would be a great week to start a summer sermon series and go off lectionary for a few weeks, just to skirt around it. See, sometimes our sin is separating ourselves from God by separating ourselves from the passages of scripture we struggle to understand or don't want to bother understanding. And of course, just last week, I preached about how God messes with our comfort zones and routines, which is hilarious, God. So here we are in Mark 3 this week. And it was the Genesis passage that saved this gospel passage for me, which is weird because it's not like this Genesis passage is all that cheerful either, but it gives us the traction we need to get to what Jesus is talking about. This is about unity. It's about being one, not being two. It's about bridging the gaps that sin made at the very beginning of time. Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness. Not that they aren't offered forgiveness, but that those who refuse to live into that forgiveness can't have it. Right? It's about division. It's about separation. And then Jesus says that all around him are his family. It's not that he's rejecting his actual mother and siblings. He's extending the definition. He's issuing a statement unity you must be united to God you must be open to the movement of the spirit and you must love one another be together he's redefining the idea of family he's broadening it to mean so much more than biology it is possible to break free from two-ness and experience oneness with one another Jesus is saying your definitions of who is part of you are too narrow. We don't have to live in Tunis. We can live as a house united, as that house of the strong man. We can live together with one another because we're so much stronger that way. One of my very favorite movies ever is Finding Nemo. You cannot argue with me that there is a better movie out there. You can, but you're not going to get very far. In In Finding Nemo, a small clownfish named Nemo gets scooped up by a diver and is taken away to live in a fancy saltwater tank in a dentist's office. Nemo's mother and siblings at the very beginning of the movie have been eaten by a big, scary, dramatic fish. So of course, when Nemo is scooped up and taken, his dad Marlin freaks out. Nemo's all he has left. That's his only son, his one child, his only real family, and he's gone. And so Marlin goes on this wild journey to go find Nemo and to bring him home. He swims with sea turtles, he goes to a recovery meeting with vegetarian sharks, and he even goes for a ride in a pelican's mouth. It's such a great parable for how God will go to any lengths to find us and bring us back. There is no separation, not even the great wide ocean, that can keep God's love for us away. It's also a great companion parable for Jesus' statement that these are my mother and my brothers. You see, along the way, Marlin meets a blue fish named Dory. And Dory has short-term memory loss, and she is constantly forgetting what they're doing and why, and she is constantly annoying everyone around her because she can't remember anything but her name. But she's also eternally optimistic and cheerful, and she is hands down my favorite character in the movie. And by the end of the story, Dory has become a part of Marlon and Nemo's family. While she is a huge pain to keep track of, and she drives Marlon crazy, Because of what they've been through together, they are family. Finally, one of the best scenes in the movie is one that sums this all up very neatly. Just as Marlin and Nemo are dramatically reunited, as always happens in a Disney movie, right? A fishing net drops and scoops up a huge school of fish right next to them. And poor, clueless Dory is scooped right up with all the other fish. Marlin has to set aside his fear to allow little Nemo to slip through the net so he can rally the other fish. Because in order to save their friend Dory, they have to get all the fish to work together. Instead of flailing in fear and swimming in whatever direction they thought might get them out, all the fish had to work together and swim in one direction. So Marlin swims around the outside of the net, and Nemo swims around the inside of the net, and they spread the message. Swim down! Everyone work together and swim down! And the weight of all the fish swimming together in the same direction breaks the net and frees all the fish, including Dory. Their unity in action facilitates their freedom. There's so much freedom and being one, in acting together, and in showing a unified
0: presence, Amen.